This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who believe that it's Stardate 2018 already. How are we still having these discussions about race? So today we welcome back special guest Dr. Tim Staines. Tim is a sessional academic and, as we now know, major Star Trek fan. Tim, what have you been working on since our last episode? Hi everyone, thanks for having me back. It's really nice to be back from last time because I had a really good time. Um, yeah, last, since then, oh, not much, but I've been doing this book chapter, um, about Japanese Australian identity, and I tried to create an intellectual or an academic framework for thinking about Japanese Australian identity, um, and I looked at the work of an artist friend of mine, um, who does photography and plays, and tried to see how her work um, could speak for this um, concept of Japanese-Australian identity. Yeah. And I also wrote a little blurb for this um, Japanese koto performance, which is like a classical instrument. Um, and it was a kind of like collaboration with Australian musicians as well. So that was fun to do as well. So given how much Tim and Scott love talking about Star Trek on our last episode, with Star Trek Discovery now out, we thought we'd dedicate an entire episode to it. And to start off with, I thought I would just ask, what are your general thoughts on Discovery's first season? It tends to be polarizing among Trekkies. I really liked the first season. Um, I, yeah, I know there was a lot of chatter about you know how it wasn't like classic Star Trek, but all of the first seasons in Star Trek are you know crappy anyway. I mean you know they they're, they're never really like high in quality. They're always a little bit silly and camp. Um, so I thought this was a really good first season. I thought they went really deeply into some of the characters. Of, of course, there are some like weaknesses. I found the first maybe like four episodes also quite difficult to watch, but I, I warmed up to it later on. Um, I found the beginning kind of over-stylized and trying to be too much like a J.J. Abrams film, and I found the characterization not so great. But as the season went along, um, I saw you know more of this kind of classic Star Trek um, sort of episodic sort of style. We had these kind of self-contained episodes. And then, yeah, and then the sort of second half became a sort of more extended narrative. Um, and I thought they tried some really ambitious things and some pretty, quite unusual things for, you know, Star Trek. Not only have you got, you know, like, the I think the first gay relationship in Star Trek, you also have these kind of transracial characters, um, you know, this kind of discussion of, I guess, torture and sexual assault. So I think they were quite heavy topics. Um, and all in all, I think that they approached them quite well. I think they pulled it off pretty well. Um, yeah, for me, it felt like a season of two halves. I mean, quite literally, because there was a mid-season break. Um, but also kind of in terms of narrative emphasis. So like you mentioned, Tim, the first sort of nine episodes or so did seem a bit more episodic in that classic Star Trek sense but then we get that second half which is a extended serialized scenario in a mirror universe with space Nazis and all that um, which tended to focus I feel more on plot and twists and action spectacle than uh, what came before that um, and I do kind of wonder how much that reflects what was happening behind the scenes particularly as Brian Fuller was m removed as a showrunner um, during the during the production of Discovery. So I don't know whether that's a sign of that shift in who's running the show or not. Um, but I did have... Uh, I mean, I, w I would say I liked it, but I also didn't like it as a first season of Star Trek. Um, there's a lot I did like, but a lot of that was kind of in that first sort of half of the season. So there was a... I mean, and I really did like some of the more goofy 
goofy stuff. As listeners would know, I'm actually still listening to, uh, not listening to, watching the original series of Star Trek. And sometimes the goofiness is kind of what I go for for that show. So we had the, that episode with like Harry Mudd turning up in that Groundhog Day sort of loop on, on the USS uh, Discovery, which was kind of my jam at the moment. Um, I didn't realize that Harry Mudd is actually a character from the original series, though. I thought it was just... Um, this introduced character that was meant to like make remind us of these kind of flamboyant trickster <laughs> characters from the original series but no the the character he reminded me of is exactly the same person so it makes a lot more sense that when he's around this kind of shenanigans happen <laughs> um and i did appreciate a lot of the episodes that kind of explored these characters like saru on that planet um which really delved into that whole first contact directive conundrum as well and i did appreciate that it sort of explored a lot of starfleet's um so-called principles with that uh backdrop of a war against the klingons like that was a continuous beat throughout both sides of that um season and just seeing how emergency like war really tests how rigidly we stick to those principles and i think we get some mixed results in that respect particularly from characters like locker and initially burnham and stuff um so i wouldn't say i'm too too purist in the sense with star trek maintaining that kind of episodic focus on philosophy of exploring the final frontier and stuff i'm perfectly comfortable with it adding that sort of ethos to a more serialized storytelling approach that's more appropriate for this so-called golden age of television. But yeah, I, I'm not so sold on what came after mid-season break with the space Nazis and all that. I, I felt like it eternally was trying too many different things at the same time. Like yeah, on one hand, like with the mud episodes and stuff, it was trying to be the original series in spirit, but in other respects, it was kind of almost trying to be Star Trek's answer to Battlestar Galactica, like the reboot. So I'm, I'm not sure how successful that is, but I am looking forward to season two and seeing how a lot of these threads play out. So Tim, one of Discovery's most immediately noticeable world-building details is its depiction of Klingons. What are your thoughts on this? How does it differ from the Klingons of its past inter- iterations? Um, I... Yeah, I, there's been a lot of discussion online about how different the Klingons look. And, you know, again, a lot of, you know, rah, 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 Trekkies, you know, saying that, you know, they don't look like what Klingons are supposed to look like. But as we know, Klingons have changed look throughout the diff- this different series. Um, and so I'm not really hung up about that. Um, I can only really compare the Klingons to the you know, next generation Voyager kind of um, era, because I haven't watched much of the original series. Um, I suppose because they're meant to be an earlier version of the Klingons, they are a more stereotypically, a more stereotypical version of themselves. And um, they, this is, you know, obviously before when um, Starfleet um was at peace with the klingons and yeah i guess i guess for me it's also interesting what they represent that's different so i always kind of read the klingons in the sort of next generation kind of era as first of all i guess a bit black and then second of all a little bit asian because of this um focus especially on honor And I guess this kind of like weird infatuation with kind of war and honor sort of reminds me of the Japanese. Um, And, you know, in the past, um, we had Lieutenant Worf, who was a transracial adoptee, like Michael Burnham. He had human parents, um, human adopt, you know, he was adopted by humans. Um, and so he had this kind of, we didn't get to see much of it, like only very occasionally. Um, but we did see this kind of battle in him between his human and, um, yeah, his Klingon kind of heritage and his human upbringing. And I guess we see that again with Michael, but also 
um, in the figure of um, Tyler, who we'll see later on. I think it's interesting that the Klingons serve as some kind of foil to the humans that they are sort of um, doing battle with. Um, so, you know, and, and sometimes it's an internal battle. It's an internal battle between, you know, Starfleet ideals and some other kind of warlike ideals, which I think speaks interestingly to present day politics. So it definitely sounds like uh, the way that the Klingons are presented has created that room for um, that kind of interpretation. So to what extent do you feel like this is explicit commentary on the show's part? I'm not sure how explicit it is. I mean, for me, it um, reflects particular anxieties of our time. So I know that... We talked last time about techno-orientalism and Star Trek, um, and I'm start I'm seeing this again, but with a different kind of spin. I think it's been a while, for me, you know, I think it's been a while in Star Trek since we've seen a enemy that has the ability to completely wipe out humanity. Um, I think the the last time I saw that was with the Borg, um, and. I think that it's really interesting now that we have this kind of enemy that has this power to overcome Starfleet. And I think that that speaks um, to our anxieties about China, basically. Um, Because I think this is the dilemma um, of our age for the US, is how its power figures against um, a very powerful um, other kind of nation. So, and the previous, so techno-orientalism itself um, is this form of orientalism, right? It's a a way of thinking about the East, um, but in a kind of technologized way. So it started with the rise of Japan and this kind of anxiety about um, Japanese modernity and it was going to become so technologically advanced that it would take over the West, right? And I think now, with the Klingons, perhaps they're not technologically as advanced, but they are extremely powerful. And I feel like um, this, is, this is one way of thinking about China. In rewatching watching uh, the two-part pilot episode, I realized that the Klingons actually are invested in these kind of uh, signifiers of Egyptian culture as well. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure we're meant to take that further than just, hey, that's cool, let's throw that in. I mean, that this sort of orientalist hodgepodge of cultural influences from the near and far east. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like we get Rejak, um, who's the torchbearer that Michael kills in the pilot. He He's um, wrapped up in bandages and then encased in a sarcophagus-type coffin, which is ornately detailed in golden patterns and metals, and then attached to the exterior of the ship. So they've taken that from Egypt. Well, not the ship part, but everything else. Um, But I did get that sort of techno-orientalist vibe with um, the Klingons, especially if they're being coded as some sort of reference point to China as well. I found Konos um, quite interesting. It had this kind of Blade Runner vibe for me with this grungy techno-noir setting and um, with these sort of kiosk-style street vendors. So I could imagine... I can almost imagine seeing Harrison Ford pop up (laughs) alongside Tilly and Michael at that point. Um, And it even dips into this kind of like racial trope about East Asian cuisines and their unsettling focus on weird seafood delicacies, right? So that kind of that sort of racist way in framing it as well. Um, Particularly when Tilly accidentally eats a piece of space whale, apparently. (laughs) So um, for me, like the, the, if there's any sort of explicit commentary, it initially felt like um, the Klingons and the culture was a kind of race-flipped white supremacy, which... Um, might be, it is a simplistic reading, particularly as I went back to it last night, uh, in the pilot, but initially I think this is because it followed so soon after Charlottesville with the old right rally around the Confederate statue that led to all these, this sort of torch lit march, um, which was very reminiscent of the Ku Klux Klan type lynching marches of, of the past. 
So that that was certainly on my mind as I was watching the Klingons uh, the first time through. But I do think um, the way in which Vox introduced as this albino um, Klingon, um, which which is where that sort of supremacy kind of manifests within Klingon culture, is not quite the same thing as saying it's white supremacy. So it's a different thing. And we'll talk to that uh, in a moment. But I did want to also spotlight Tukuvma's uh, ideology, Tukuvma being the the sort of um the this would-be messiah messiah figure uh within klingon culture who's trying to unify all the warring clans under one sort of house and to and he's using a war against the federation to sort of motivate that and that ideology or the prophecy of kalish is um very invested in words like purity which is mobilized against rhetoric like mixed when discussing the Federation. So we have Tukuvma saying, where humans, Vulcans, Tellarites, and Andorians mix. Um, but uh, just reflecting back on the Klingon homeworld, Konos, it, it appears to be multicultural, at least in a sense that more than just Klingons live there. So I was actually wondering whether this sort of purity rhetoric is actually a comment on miscegenation. Uh, particularly in a way in which Takuma says mixed uh, in relation to the Federation. And as we know, um, I mean, Spock is famously half human, half Vulcan. So Star Trek has gone in this direction before. As well as that sort of war cry, remain Klingon. Um, it seems to be very interested in remaining individual and pure, uh, which is very familiar if you're talking about eugenics and stuff as well. Um but I also was curious how Tukuvma seems to be espousing a form of Starfleet-esque unity within a particular race. So if you think about how we are introduced to um, the USS Enterprise crew in the original series, where a big deal was made about how humans of multiple races and cultural backgrounds, as well as genders, are all working harmoniously together on on the bridge and no one seems to notice <laughs> um this is kind of like this perverse sort of interpretation of that in relation to the klingons isn't it it's like um the 24 warring clans of the klingons are unified through an outward focused threat or through um if we were to look at the starfleet through this sort of um motive of exploring the final frontier um and it appears to lead to a situation where Klingons of varying creeds, allegiances, and bloodlines work side by side in an otherwise taboo setting, not unlike that first witnessed on the USS Enterprise in the original series. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, whether that is actually some sort of weird, perverse commentary on Starfleet. <laughs> well, okay, there are lots of things there. Um, I, I also really agree with your... You know, reading of the Blade Runner vibe of Kronos, um, there is this kind of, I think this moment where there's, I think like a guard who's snoring and we see some of the Klingon text and it looks really Asian. Like you could say it was a, um, you know, a representation of, um, you know, Chinese, Japanese maybe and Korean kind of text. Um, all sort of mashed together. I think that it's, I think that actually the Klingons... I think that they change meaning, you know, from between the first half and the second half. They kind of represent two different things, I feel like. I feel like at the beginning, there was all this talk of the Klingons being a critique of, you know, the kind of um, hard right ideology building in the US. So a lot of people were saying that he was a kind of Trump-like figure, a Tukuvma was, and, and perhaps Vok as well, um, that their kind of like um, racial purist ideology was meant to be a reflection of what was happening in the US. Um, and then I think with, when, when that, um, yeah, so all that stuff about, you know, race mixing, wanting wanting not you know what not wanting basically a multicultural kind of you know structure of society um which starfleet um you know is meant to embody i think all of that stuff yeah is a um reflection of of those kind of social social kind of um you know fractures within america the the remain klingon kind of war cry sounds you know kind of is sort of reminiscent of keep you know making America great again, um, and that kind of ideology. 
But then when when we see when we go through later in the season, the way that Starfleet becomes um, set against uh, the Klingons and also the Terrans means I think that the Klingons start to represent something more. The second half is more about a more global or spatial um, politics rather than a more kind of um, interior politics to do with America. So, and I think that's a really interesting point about the the different warring clans coming together. Yeah, I don't really know what to do with that. I think that it's interesting that there is this politics of unity there, but at the same time, it's a politics of division too, right? Because there's always this kind of um, anxiety about the, the different clans breaking up and um, the Vulcan, uh, sorry, the Klingons not being um, unified. And at the end, we get that sort of anxiety too. Laurel has to be the one to unify everyone because the Klingons have lost their way. And I guess for me that perhaps that reflects this kind of fantasy that, you know, the Western world is unified because of its politics, because of its democratic politics, whereas this these other um, undemocratic societies that are the enemy um, are always under threat of, um, you know, revolution or division uh, because they don't have as high ideals as the Federation. So I think it might be valuable here to return to... I guess that distinction between allegory and coding that I think that we touched on in our last episode, because I've noticed this term coding coming up a little bit in the conversations here. And when we talk about allegory, it tends to be a much, often a much simpler kind of one for one replacement. It's a very explicit uh, story of like, this means this, and we want you to understand it in this way. But coding tends to be much more subtle and can be done for very different purposes. It can be done to provide a kind of subtle commentary on what's happening uh, in the world. It can be done for uh, essentially to perpetuate the the same ideas that are are happening in the world. And then it can also be in that middle space of from laziness or ignorance, because it essentially is a creative shortcut in storytelling. So when we're talking about coding, I I tend to think of coding as... um, a way that these kind of these ideas that we have in this case about culture and ethnicity um, that are embedded in uh, our consciousness, uh, they come up in small ways. And it means that the writers essentially need to do much less work for us to get the points they're trying to make. Whether or not they're trying to comment on the real world, they need to do less work for us to really understand what particular political tensions are about in a show or why people have the actions that they do or why someone hates that person, why someone likes that person or why that person is afraid of something. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. I, I, I'll start with Tim. Tim, are you on the same page as me? Would you add anything to that? Um, no, I mean, that sounds, yeah, true. Um, yeah, that sounds good. And I guess, yeah, for me, if I'm thinking about how coding or allegory fits into Star Trek Discovery, I guess I'd see it more as a, a, you know, an example of coding. I think there are various ways in which the, you know, the different races become code for other things. Um, but at, at different times, they can be codes for different things. Whereas I don't think there's a hard allegorical narrative to be taken out of um, Star Trek Discovery. I don't think uh, coding can uh, is necessarily deliberate as well. Like sometimes a representation could be crafted that is coded in certain ways to reference, you know, real world cultures and stuff, but that might not be intended at all. Um, and so we get so many like sort of alternative readings into certain characters and stuff all across pop culture. So that's probably some other distinction I would introduce into that dichotomy between allegory and coding. Sometimes coding can just be a sign of sort of normative influences. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I think, where I see that middle space being of either ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance as an inherently negative thing. We're all ignorant to an extent or 
the laziness of not really wanting to <laughs> to engage with an yeah, idea, yeah. but knowing that it if you do this, everyone gets what you're talking about. I don't really want to think too much about it, but we'll, we'll write it that way. So let's talk a bit about Vok. Tim, how does the character of Vok tie into our understanding of albinism? Uh, how might that differ from whiteness, for example? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, Vok is such a oddly placed character because he is, um, I guess he's, he stands outside of the racial homogeneity of the Klingons and their ideology. At the beginning we have um, all the other Klingons sort of, you know, shitting on Vok because he's, they call him, I think they call him vermin um, he's an outsider. Um, he's 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 not seen as um, one of the others because of the fact um, that he has albinism, um, or we're meant to read it, I suppose, um, that he has some kind of albinism. <laughs> so, yeah. So and so, I guess it compl- he complicates the politics of this um, Klingon ideology to Kuvma, who is the who is the um, leader before he dies at the beginning of the series, includes Vok into his group. He becomes, I think, the torchbearer or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so he... I guess he's he's meant to symbolise the fact that Takuma wants to create unity um, rather than division, and even though even though he doesn't look like everyone else, he's still a Klingon. So maybe you could read that as kind of cultural rather than racial. So, you know, I'm thinking of those kind of Asian people who you see at Liberal Party, like, launches, or like, or, the, or maybe like the Asian... No, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of those. A- Asian people at, like, um, the One Nation Party kind of events, right? And I'm always like, what the f- what the hell are those people doing there? Don't they understand what um, One Nation stands for? But they understand what One Nation stands for. They've internalised um, the kind of racist ideologies of their party and they don't see themselves as part of it. If they feel like they cultivate um, the, the same kind of um, politics of One Nation then they are provisionally included. So, I don't know, I guess you could read Vok in that way, but also I think maybe that's a little bit unfair because I think he also represents um, a lot more than that, especially after he, you know, Laurel implants him into Tyler's body. He, he, there's this, obviously there's this assumption that he could lead the Klingon Empire in a human body, which is, seems like the most kind of radical um, thing. And I would imagine that there'd be a lot of kind of like burly, angry Klingons that wouldn't be happy with that. Um, but it's quite a revolutionary um, thing to do. So hmm, I don't really know what to do with that. So just to quickly uh, explain to any of our non-Australian listeners um, in terms of political parties. So liberals in Australia are right wing (laughs) and uh, One Nation is a a very it's a nationalistic party that's very much about upholding uh, predominantly white Australia yeah Vox a very interesting character because he's sort of used to leverage this idea with Takuvma of unifying the Klingons and so he kind of becomes the perfect example of that for Takuvma, because Vok is such an outlier, both in the sense of his skin color, but also because of his um, non-noble status as well. So he's called son of no one several times as well. So there's this really rigid noble class structure as well in Klingon society. But Takuvma, despite initially being, you know, uh, rejective of Vok as well, um, quickly turns around to allow Vok to have that exalted role of torchbearer after Vok proves his commitment to the faith or principle. Um, So he kind of allows within the frame of the text this example of what Tukuvma stands for in terms of bypassing these kind of 
long-running uh, knowledges and understandings within Klingon society to turn that empire looking outward and thus being unified internally, or at least hope so. Um, I mean, of course, we shouldn't agree with Takufama's ideology <laughs> based as it is on racial purity and all that. But at the same time, again, I have that sort of sense of Starfleet principle and how looking outward can unify inwardly. How does Ash Tyler's arc play out? Can this character be described as transracial? Yeah, so the the term transracial is actually is only supposed to be used when we talk about um, transracial adoptees. So those are people who um, are adopted by parents who are of a different race than them. But it's also become colloquially used as a kind of racial equivalent to transgender. So people who you know, were born white, for example, but inside they feel black, right? And so um, it's kind of colloquially, colloquially used, colloquially used uh, to talk about that sort of identity scenario. So when we think about Ash Tyler as transracial, I guess we're thinking about the fact that he has a human body, but inside he's Klingon, whereas... Um, Michael Burnham is a transracial adoptee, I suppose, because her father is um, her father is Vulcan, even though her mother is human. Yeah, so there's that difference in the way we're using those terms. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think that Ash Tyler is interesting. Yeah, he's he's he signifies some really interesting. Um, things and really interesting politics because I think Giorgio calls him a half-breed at some point so he explicitly um, signifies mixed race consciousness right so he represents someone who is mixed race in a quite literal sense because he's got in some you know race a, you know, another person grafted onto the body of, a, of another. Admiral Cornwall briefed me on this half-breed. I can see from a strategic standpoint its value as a weapon. But as its Klingon, it has been neutered. It is benign, useless to them, yet tarnished to the Federation. So what good is it to either side? He has access to the Klingons' memories. All I can see is that who knows what playing with the string. This is a ball light. It doesn't run. It doesn't slip. It's the first thing I learned as a kid that made me, me. It ties me to my past, who I am. Folks' life, his memories, you're here too. Always with me. I'm willing to share his knowledge. Not for you. Starfleet. Do you want my help or not? And so I found it quite interesting the ways in which, especially towards the end, how ungrounded he is. And also how untrustworthy a character he is too, which is a really kind of stereotypical way to represent mixed-race people, or it's a very old-school way of representing mixed-race people as these kind of untrustworthy people. We don't know what camp they're in, right? Um, I found myself not being able to trust or like Tyler after he claimed um, to be human again. Um, and then, yeah, his kind of whole narrative of... Cling, uh, sorry, no longer fitting into Federation society... Um, is quite interesting too. And he's had this done to him too. Like It's not like... <laughs> he's not in power of these circumstances at all. He's had this identity grafted onto him. He's been tortured, and yet they can't help but treat him more as a Klingon or a potential Klingon than as a human, which I find <laughs> quite abhorrent, really, about Starfleet. Um, he knew I'd be criticizing the discourse of the heroic faction in the show that's not my style at all um yeah and Tyler's very I found him very interesting um and um I, I thought he had a lot of potential for what he could 
um, bring to the table, not just about these kind of transracial experiences, but also in the sense of his PTSD and in the sense of his um, his experiences of being raped by a female Klingon. Um, which was a very surprising turn for me at at the mid-season point. It's revealed that Tyler was uh, raped by Laurel. Uh, we're given no context for this at that point, so we don't know that Vox actually inside his body at this point. So we just are meant to think that she's raping him as part of the torture. Um, and it doesn't really follow through on exploring that in enough detail, I don't think, in the second half of the season. Um, because that PTSD is kind of explained away as being tied to that internal conflict with Vox consciousness. At least that's how I interpret it. Um, and I don't think I like how that's conflated. Those those two things. So the PTSD of being tortured and raped, as well as it is conflated with this internal dynamic between Tyler versus Vok inside the body. Um, which kind of leaves that shocking reveal of a naked Klingon body complete with uh, quite visible breasts basically as that. So it's just Klingon boobies. That That's how I feel anyway. I do agree that there is that sort of mixed race element to how we're supposed to interpret Tyler. And I mean, comments like he's not useful to either side, which is a unfortunate rhetoric from the Terran version of Giorgio. Um, which he agrees with. He, he's not quite either, but maybe I can help both, is something that he says to frame his logic for joining Laurel, which is very similar to how we were talking about Spock. He's, he's neither Vulcan nor human, like, fully. So that, that sort of dislocation, again, is recurrent within Tyler, but it's different because Tyler is not, you know, naturally born a mixed race, if you will. He, he's had this forced upon him through torture and stuff. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about that, um, Tim, and with regard to Laurel and this legacy of torture, rape, um, and having Tyler having his body and identity hijacked through her actions. Um, it doesn't really seem to dwell on it, does it? I think that it's it's interesting because he represents a unsettling mixed race character because of the fact that he still identifies with the other. He, he seems to enjoy being Klingon, interacting with the Klingons, right? And there's something about that that means that he can't fit into the Federation, right? Which is such a kind of... Which kind of highlights how kind of Western multiculturalism is really just a form of segregation because you can fit in if, if you don't you know, identify with your other culture, basically, if you assimilate. Whereas if you want to do that thing where you move between cultures, actually, there's no space for you. Um, and so that's why there's no space for him within the Federation at the end. Um, and he has to go to the Klingons, who are more inclusive than the Federation now, right? With with Laurel, with Laurel, you know, um, now the head of the Klingons and, you know, all this stuff that happened with Vok all of a sudden there's more space for Tyler with the Klingons than there are with the Federation. And the Klingons were supposed to be the the space Nazis. Well, well no, they were supposed to be like the Trump, the super conservative, um, you know, Trump um, version um, of space people. It's true what the Emperor said. I'm not good for either side. But maybe I can be good for both. I've never been great at goodbyes. Neither am I. I've had too many of them. Michael, in spite of everything that happened to you, your capacity to love literally saved my life. I'm gonna miss looking at you. So I think there's a quite hypocritical, you know, um, politics happening there. 
Tim, you mentioned Michael Burnham a little earlier. Do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, her role and how the idea of transracialism um, applies to that character? Yeah, so I think that Michael Burnham plays a sort of similar kind of role to to Tyler in the sense that she's, I guess, bicultural in some way. She's not biracial, she's human, but she's brought up by Vulcans. Um, she's the sister of Spock. Um, I guess, you know, she also has that in-between role, but she has that quite classic... Um, Star Trek sort of narrative trajectory of becoming more human, right? You were the other and now you're going to learn to become more human, which is an assimilation narrative. We see it in many, many characters. Um, but she does, she is, she does manage to um, sit outside of some of the Star Trek uh, some of the Starfleet ideologies at some points, and then she becomes the pure kind of embodiment of those um, um, ideals at other points too. So, you know, at the beginning, she's she's the one saying we need to attack the um, the Klingons first because that's what they want on you know that's what they will understand. Whereas that goes um, directly against Starfleet policy. Two hundred and forty years ago, near Hatoria, a Vulcan ship crossed into Klingon space. The Klingons attacked immediately. They destroyed the vessel. Vulcans don't make the same mistake twice. From then on, until formal relations were established, whenever the Vulcans crossed paths with Klingons, the Vulcans fired first. They said hello in a language the Klingons understood. Violence brought respect. Respect brought peace. Captain, we have to give the Klingons a Vulcan hello. If their intention is to attack, falling up our fists won't dissuade them. It would be logical for you to take into account my success rate during our seven years together and execute my plan without further challenge before we're dragged into war. Starfleet doesn't fire first. That's all, number one. We have to. But in the end of the series, she's also the one that comes up with sort of the the middle solution between um, being exterminated and exterminating the Klingons. She manages to find a middle way. Um, her father is even somebody that is an you know allows for or enables um, the the option of annihilating the Klingon homeworld Kronos. Um, so that's he he conspires with the evil Terran Giorgio um, to allow that to happen, um, and so. He says to Burnham that you managed to find another way. You were able to find another way. And so she, again, has that kind of middle ground, sort of diplomatic role, I guess, between different points of view. So I think that that's interesting, too, that she, as a kind of bicultural figure, is able to solve the problems whereas Tyler isn't. And what are the key differences between Tyler and um, uh, uh, Michael? You know, on one, I think Michael is a lot more <laughs> on, the, on the Federation side, right? She, is, she, she in, stands for the Federation ideals at many points, um, and she, she, she's not ambiguously on... Um, the other side, as well as on this side, like Tyler is. And therefore, the fact that she can do things um, that benefit the Federation mean that she's a good kind of um, in-between bicultural character. And I think, I mean, at times, Tyler has to play that role too. He is the intelligence insider. He's a spy. He gives um, fed the Federation the knowledge about Kronos that they need, um, and he manages to get them into the spaces and figure out, um, you know, where um, where are the particular places that they need to be. I think there's a temple or something on Kronos that they need to go to. He's the one that can figure that out. So he also plays that role of um, having cultural knowledge of the other and... Um, allow, allowing uh, and giving that knowledge to the um, to the Federation so that the Federation can um, defeat the other, right? So he's, plays, he's a classic kind of spy. Um, I guess maybe you could say he's a sort of double agent, maybe. 
um, he's, he's, he's sort of one of the other, um, but he's infiltrating them um, in order to help the Federation defeat um, their enemy. So, yeah, so he, he has to play that role as well. That makes him a good sort of half-breed, I suppose. That makes him... Um, whereas if he, if he didn't do that, I think that we wouldn't have as much sympathy for him at the end, right? And he, he does that kind of dirty work of being the spy, right? Um, and then when he goes away to the Klingons, it's like, okay, um, we feel good about the fact that um, he's gone. He's done what he, he needs for, or what we need from him, and now he's gone, now we can um, rest easy. We don't need his disturbing presence anymore. Yeah, so I think there's different versions of how this in-between character can look um, and which ones are more ideal than others. Yeah, you could even say that, I mean, it's, it's very blood point, but season one is bookended between two mutinies on Michael's behalf. And the initial one, she's bucking um, Starfleet principal on the imperative of survival so she's willing to shirk those principles in the face of imminent threat um and it leads to all kinds of chaos and bad stuff but then um in in the finale michael is threatening mutiny at least uh on the basis of affirming starfleet principles so finding that middle way that you mentioned is this how starfleet wins the war genocide you want to do this here Fine. Terms of atrocity are convenient after the fact. The Klingons are on the verge of wiping out the Federation. Yes, but ask yourself, why did you put this mission in the hands of a Terran and why the secrecy? It's because you know it's not who we are. It very soon will be. We do not have the luxury of principle. That is all we have, Admiral. A year ago, I stood alone. I believed that our survival was more important than our principles. I was wrong. Do we need a mutiny today to prove who we are? Although I do want to zone in on that middle way because what that amounts to is placing a hydrogen bomb on the Klingon homeworld um, which would she cause a genocide herself if it's ever detonated, hands that hydrogen bomb over to Laurel um, and expects her to use the threat of <laughs> a suicidal genocide in that sense um, to gain control of the Klingon Empire and bring them under, you know, a leash to stop the war. So what Starfleet principle stands for then is regime change by proxy. <laughs> so it's not really that great of a solution in my eyes. Um, I mean, so Konos goes on with a hydrogen bomb located in its core or something, um, which cannot be a good thing going forward. Um, yeah, I don't like Michael. Like, I didn't like Michael in the pilot. Uh, which I rewatched. Um, she's very unlikable, but she goes through this arc where she comes to stand for Starfleet principle, and on, along the way, it becomes quite persuasive. So I like where she ends up, but yeah, Michael Burnham at the beginning is not a good person in most respects, um, and I think that's particularly clear with the way she treats Saru. So Saru is basically the Spock figure on on the USS Shenzhou or something. I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's not the Discovery yet. Um, where he, he's kind of like the highest profile alien on board. And he sort of represents a perspective that, like Vulcans with their extreme emphasis on rationality and against sentimentality, Kelpians kind of give this sort of perspective on... Um, curiosity and exploration and their innate instinct is to be against those impulses because they have this evolved sense of incoming death because of their you know their long-term history previously as livestock um so uh, saru a kelpian can sense oncoming danger before most other identities on the ship um and michael is 
kind of a shithead to it in the pilot in the sense that she's always like cutting him off shoving him off his console um and even um in, in one of those sort of debate scenes in the captain's uh, uh lodging he she basically positions um saru's kelpian uh biological traits as innately opposed to Starfleet principle, which is an extremely racist thing when you think about it. Um, and that's that kind of even informs her actions afterwards, even after the mutiny and they end up on the same ship under Captain Lorca, she's still kind of like exploiting these characteristics of his Kelpianness and still sort of counterposing those against Starfleet's um, mission protocol, which is a very... I mean, it goes... F- it go. It's on another level from what McCoy, uh, as as we spotlighted in our previous uh, episode last season, what McCoy, how he approaches Spock and always like sort of um, opposes Spock. <laughs> it's on another fucking level to that. It, it's deeply uncomfortable to watch. Um, so she goes from that to being the embodiment of Starfleet, which, as I mentioned, is um, basically uh, keeping a and other in line through the threat of a hydrogen bomb <laughs> genocide with a proxy uh, puppet government. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And yeah, because that's such a good point about the the proxy, um, the regime change um, and the sort of proxy war. And because I had originally read this as a sort of a kind of like revisioning of a World War Two fantasy um, because, you know, the idea, if, if we read, if we read the, um, oncoming kind of invasion of the, um, uh, of the Klingons as some kind of anxiety about China, right? And I think that, you know, within the American imagination, China is the only figure that really, um, you know, can, can stand in for, for the, for the Klingons there. Um, and I think that there is definitely uh, an increased anxiety about the possibility of China's power overcoming um, that of the US. Um, and I think that it's interesting that in the end, it's a matter of having um, a kind of superior bomb, right? Which is what happened when the Japanese um, were were a, a, an invasion threat, I suppose or at least a kind of or, or, or military threat. So there is this fantasy, I think, that America could just do that again, right, with China. We don't have to worry. Um, we'll just have this better bomb um, and we'll just hold it over them and or we'll just have this better technology or something like that and, and they will fall into line, right? Um, but the, uh, you're so right that it is a regime change. It's it's a form of imperialism. It's using weapons um, in order to get um, people who are aligned with your values um, back into power or into power in sort of you know enemy kind of nations, right? Um, and that's basically what. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly as you say, the high kind of federation um, values and politics are really just um, an example of American imperialism and all the ways <laughs> in which they have created regime change through proxy wars all throughout the sort of late 20th century um, and beyond. So I want to take a moment to think about speculative fiction and to think a little bit about what we spoke about in last season about uh, Roddenberry's interview with the humanist and how he was kind of talking about um, like he had a couple of comments about, well, you know, if by the time that Star Trek is happening, humans of different ethnicities and races haven't started to work together, then there won't be a human race. Like that just, that has to be the inevitable future. And we're also talking about, you know, gender equality on, on Starfleet and, and that kind of thing. So I guess uh, I've been thinking a little bit about the role of speculative fiction and what it should do and like not in a prescriptive way, but like the two different things that spec fic 
can do essentially when it comes to thinking about these ideas. So one is to have that kind of utopian future and say, well, yeah, we have issues now about inequalities because of different power balances in all different ways. Uh, But realistically, in 100 years, 200 years, a few thousand years, wherever your spec fic show or book series or whatever is taking place, that shouldn't be a problem. We should have moved past that. Humanity should be far beyond these as issues. So that's one. And that's I would like to think that's realistic. I hope that is a realistic outlook. Uh, But then the other side is, okay, well, what's the point of specfic? What's it supposed to do for us? Is it supposed to be comforting us? Probably not. That's generally not what speculative fiction does. It's rarely a comforting genre. Um, It's more of a way for us to really speculate. It's for us to think through ideas and one of those genres of ideas is political ideas and think through, I guess, what imagined futures do we have? And I think when it's done best, it's sort of, it takes elements of both of those things where it imagines some areas as not utopian, but as we've progressed. We have uh, learned some lessons And some things are now much more normalized, but then you still have to have these other areas that humans are still walking through because otherwise, what's the point? Why are you even presenting these issues here? Why is it specific at all? Why isn't it just, you know, fantasy, much more standard fantasy or much more standard science fiction, which science fiction itself as a genre overlaps with speculative fiction, but it's not exactly the same. Speculative fiction is supposed to be trying to do something, whereas science fiction can, if it wants to, not have, I mean, not not have a message because everything has a message, but not have those more political messages. So I'm always a little bit frustrated when I see the more simplistic takes of just like we're 10,000 years into the future and people are still homophobic and racist like (laughs) that seems just like really is that where we're going to be because that makes me tired just thinking about it Um, (laughs) but at the same time there still needs to be some complexity I don't think we're going to get to a stage where we're a perfect human race and even if we did that's awesome but that doesn't help me watching a show now that doesn't help people think about them so I guess now if we turn back to something like Star Trek how do we feel about the fact that Star Trek continues to imagine this future that has that that very familiar sounding rhetoric the kind of rhetoric that we are um, faced with now and it's sometimes maybe perpetuating it sometimes common commentating on it Uh, and to what extent is that useful and productive and to what extent is that troubling and just kind of showing that we really can't imagine us getting better? Yeah, I'm kind of torn on that, to be honest, because uh, on one hand, I do agree that it's incredibly depressing when we get these sort of these fictions that depict humanity's future as being very familiar in the worst kind of sense but at the same time particularly with stuff like science fiction I do appreciate the way in which things like metaphor allow us to establish a a vocabulary for discussing very difficult topics that we are living through today which are just bound up with um, terrible discourses now that make it difficult to do so in real world terms. So like when when you have aliens and all that stuff or in fantasy like in Buffy where you have all these sort of supernatural elements and they're, they're used as metaphor to establish a way in talking about very uncomfortable things, it allows us a way in. Um, and I do see that value in things like Star Trek. But at the same time, um, the purpose of Star Trek, if we were to go back to Roddenberry's vision, was to imagine like this humanist um, uh, future for humanity. Um, and so it is performing that function and imagining what humanity could be in a positive sense, but it's also hemmed in with all these other things. Um, so yeah, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that execution, um, but but I do agree with the sort of the 
exhaustion one might get when you read something like Saga, which is a comic series everyone should read, and we're still dealing with homophobia and racism and transphobia and all that stuff. Um, but in relation to Discovery, I feel like um, we've mentioned a few times how there's a Terran version of Giorgio. So when we come back from the mid-season break, um, the entire cast has found themselves stranded in a mirror universe whereby Starfleet is actually the Space Nazis. Um, and this is a... Uh, it performs that similar function as the Klingons did in the canon verse, whereby they're the space Nazis and Starfleet are counterposed to them, and Starfleet are the beacon, the light, the hope, whereas they're the darkness. But by putting humanity in that position in the mirror universe, it's basically saying, you know, it could be a lot worse than what we get in the canon canon version of humanity. But I mean, uh, and that works to make Starfleet seem great ethically and ph philosophically. It gives a more positive spin on it. Um, but at the same time, this is something that uh, this genre does a lot, which is it could be worse, whereas it doesn't as often deal with um, framing or representation or counterpositions that tie into a notion of it could be better. Like, I would be interested in a mirrorverse situation where our our Starfleet heroes encounter a version of humanity that is actually better <laughs> than what we get in the canonverse and see what kind of conversations we could have about how that sort of dichotomy would expose um, the shortcomings or the gaps or whatever that we've been pointing out with Starfleet's assumptions about how to deal with the other and so forth. So yeah, exhausting and... Um, at the same time, yeah, with some value in using that kind of metaphor, deploying word metaphor in that way. But yeah, I would be interested in seeing that, particularly in a Star, Star Trek setting. Yeah, for sure. That's such a good point. Um, yeah, because Starfleet is, you know, I mean, the Star Trek series is so minimal on its critiques of Starfleet. And I think that kind of imagining of a, of a better version of Starfleet would be amazing. We do occasionally see races that appear to be better sometimes those races that appear to be better are actually worse like behind closed doors like we, we discover later that they're actually not that good and so we kind of get this feeling oh we can't be that good you know like there's there's only so far that we can go um the terrans yeah the terrans do serve as that kind of oh you know this is i suppose i think that the terrans started to represent actually the kind of hard right fascistic kind of mentality um, that we see nowadays, um, not only in America but all around the world, the kind of rise of the hard the hard right, and it, I think that they become this kind of comment on what what humanity could be, but also they are also the underside to the Federation too. I think that we 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 can't help but sort of see that um, U.S. imperialism is a bit like the Terrans too. They do all these kind of shocking, atrocious things that the Terrans do, like torture, right, in Abu, uh, Abu Ghraib, um, you know, and they also use weapons of mass destruction. They kill a lot of people, a lot of innocent people, right? The underside of US imperialism is the Terrans, whereas the kind of, you know, the, the face is the Federation. Mm. Um, and so they, they do kind of... Um, function in that way and so I think that it's interesting when you know when Sarek and the Admiral decide on Giorgio's plan they say yeah let's just annihilate Kronos it's it's quite telling it's it's showing us that actually the Federation are the Terrans really and it's not until the middle and then we learn the middle way is really just proxy war which isn't really that much <laughs> better you know like so the, you're right the options are quite limited and it's quite limited in in its ability to imagine um, a better humanity. And I think that comes back to Mia's point, you know, I think speculative fiction wants to imagine a better future, and I think Star Trek does do that. But it's limited by how um, great a future the writers can imagine, right? So I think that they're, <coughs> speaking to that point earlier, um, you know, there's only so far that the Federation can actually um, deal with difference. Most of its um, politics is assimilationist, and um, there's it's a limitation 
um, I think on a, on a global level with how to deal with difference um, in a really kind of um, m messy um, but, um, you know, more engaged way rather than sort of we see your difference and we want you to conform, right? There's not a lot of um, speculative fiction, I think, you know, that I know of. I don't, I don't consume a lot of speculative fiction, but there's not a lot of I, that I know that can really deal with that question of difference in a, in a really different way. A lot of the stuff that I watch um, is really along the lines of um, Star Trek's assimilationist politics and grafting on present day, grafting present day anxieties onto the future. But having said that, I think that, you know, what we can do with this is to recognise the places where the speculative fiction um, betrays um, particular kinds of politics that we can, we can work with. So I think when, you know, even if it's, if it's explicit or inexplicit politics is along particular lines, I think the story will always betray contradictions there and also possibilities for um, different imaginings, different imagined futures. So, for example, I'm just thinking of that, well, that Vok thing we talked about earlier. You know, if we think about the Klingons as representing a, a kind of stereotypical other or enemy, Vok is... Vok breaks all those stereotypes, right? He, he's, he's an anomaly... Um, and w if we think, if we, if we have a prescriptive understanding of the politics of Star Trek, he doesn't fit into that. And I think that this betrays um, a really interesting thing, which is that the enemy is complicated. The enemy is contradictory, um, that the enemy um, has all of these kinds of um, unnerving similarities to us. Um, they also... Um, use ideologies in weird, roundabout ways that we also do, right? And if we want to unpack the complexity of a character like Vok, that means that we have to deal with difference, you know, in a more sophisticated way um, than we would otherwise do. And I think that, you know, by, yeah, by doing that kind of analysis of speculative fiction, um, we can come to those questions of, you know, but how could this be better? What are the kind of unconscious ways in which the writer imagines something better um, in particular characters or particular situations? I think on that note, it's a good time to thank our amazing guest team for returning to talk more about Star Trek with us. Uh, you're making me realise that I really need to get my act together and start watching Star Trek. <laughs> We've got her. We've got her on air. She's promised <laughs> to watch it now. <laughs> if you want to follow more of Tim's work, you can find him on academia.edu. I will put the link in the bio. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and The Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website www.tropewatchers.com for all episodes, extra content or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia and we are your tropewatchers. Watchers. <laughs>